This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. I often imagine what it would be like to be other people, and I envision what it would be like to be in their skin for a day. I do this with celebrities or scientists or artists and politicians or athletes or friends and wonder what it would be like to be someone with the profoundly magical talent of Joan Didion or the beauty of Sophia Loren or the brave, courageous defiance of Nelson Mandela. I consider how I would behave and if I would make similar choices and decisions. I contemplate if I would continue to live life as they do or if I would conduct myself differently. I also tend to do this with less noble characters. I find myself fantasizing about what it would be like to be silly television characters and imagine myself as a real-life Sidney Bristow on Alias or Christina Yang on Grey's Anatomy or Bette Porter on The L Word. Would I make the choices they do? Would I cheat? Would I kill? Would I wear fabulously skimpy outfits and take advantage of my newfound athletic prowess or knack for foreign languages? It feels strangely exhilarating to slip on someone else's perception for a brief time and inhabit the elusive construct of their norms. I imagine living someone else's life without my own fears or insecurities, and I play with the notion of what would be possible with their beauty or their brilliance or their balls. I never consider that these characters have any flaws. I imagine that their lives are perfect. They are never unhappy, they are never frustrated, they are never depressed, and they are always unfailingly beautiful. The concept of beauty has been a subjective archetype since the dawn of man. Trends come and go, perceptions change and evolve, and with each passing fad we still seek to achieve this infinitely immeasurable ideal of what is beautiful. Yet the quest remains a constant. Last week, while sitting in an airport waiting for yet another delayed flight, I got bored trying to get my wireless internet to work and shut my computer in utter frustration. I looked around and observed the other travelers. Some were eating fast food from styrofoam boxes. Some were leafing through trashy magazines. Some were tapping out messages on blackberries. Others were yapping loudly on cell phones or arguing with the gate agent. I saw well-dressed people, people in dirty sweatpants, boys in expensive sneakers, women in stiletto heels. I even saw someone wearing a pink wig. As I continued to scan the close-knit crowd, I came upon a young black woman sitting with two children. She seemed to be in her early thirties. Her face looked as if it had been severely burned and was tight and heavily grafted. Clumps of hair on her head and parts of her hands were missing. They, too, were severely burned and grafted. Yet she sat laughing with her children, and as they cavorted together, I wondered what had happened to her. Was she a victim of 9-11?
Was she in a terrible car accident? Was she once beautiful? Was she happy to be alive? I had so many questions I wanted to ask, but I knew I never could. Once we all got on the plane, the pilot broadcasted more delays in the air. He reported even more. It was a small aircraft, and as the flight attendant finished making her announcements and apologies, she looked around. Look at all these miserable faces, she proclaimed. Surprised at her unexpected candor, everyone laughed. But I couldn't help but wonder what the burned woman thought. I searched for where she was sitting and saw she was all the way in the back row with her children. She had her arms around them, and she was looking down. In that moment, my heart broke. I have thought about this woman every day since that trip. I think about her as I berate myself for being too fat or hating my hair or wishing I looked younger or prettier. I thought of her on Wednesday as I walked through the West Village in New York City. It was a sunny, crisp day, and as I felt the wobbly cobblestones under my feet, I watched the people walking past me and wondered who they were and where they came from. Suddenly, I noticed a woman coming towards me. She was a middle-aged woman, likely in her 40s or early 50s. She was still dressed for winter, and as she approached, I saw that she was actually wearing two coats. Her hair looked like a big bird's nest, and she was carrying a bag full of tattered newspapers. She was crisscrossing the sidewalk and seemed to be talking to herself. As we neared each other, she saw that I was looking at her and she marched towards me. Unsure of what she wanted, I held my handbag tight. As she came closer, I saw that she had a deep, thick, dark scar on the outside of her hand. She came right up to me and asked me what I was looking at. Nervous about her proximity, I quickly responded, nothing. And then, before I knew it, she got even closer. Two inches from my face, she demanded, Tell me I look pretty. Without blinking an eye, I responded, You look pretty. And then she put her hand into her mouth and bit down hard on her scar. As she quickly walked away, I realized that in comparison to less fortunate people, she could be considered pretty. To many, many more, she would seem frightening or sick or sad. But when this strange woman with two coats and bad hair heard she was pretty from a total stranger, for one small moment, it was all she needed to hear, and she seemed very willing to believe it. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Abbott Miller. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Abbott Miller is a designer, writer, curator, and educator whose projects are concerned with the cultural role of design. In 1985, with Ellen Lepton, he established Design Writing Research, a multidisciplinary studio that pioneered the concept of the designer as author, in which content and form are developed in a symbiotic relationship. In 1999, he became a partner in Pentagram's New York office, he also maintains a studio in Baltimore where he has taught design at the Maryland Institute College of Art since 1997. He's the editor and designer of the award-winning visual and performing arts journal Twice, and his work and critical writing has appeared in I, Print, ID, and other publications. He is co-author with Alan Lepton of the classic Design Writing Research, Writing on Graphic Design. 
A survey of his design work, Open Book, Design and Content, will be published by Princeton Architectural Press in 2009. Welcome, Abbott. Thank you, Debbie. Oh, it's so wonderful to have you on the show at long last. <laughs> I took, the, I think, your last slot, right? No, are you kidding? Are you kidding? And hardly. Um, well, this is actually our second interview. We did an interview for my book, and in in that book, you talked about your very first creative memory, which is one of my absolute favorites. You were running down a hall in your house with your diaper on. You were a little boy, I'm assuming, <laughs> <laughs> and you were dropping turds along the way. Your quote, not mine. Right. Um, and your four sisters were running after you, screaming. And this is such a visual image that I have in my mind now that I actually feel like I could have been there. I see this so clearly. Um, <laughs> you going to say something? Or just that it's funny because I have the same thing. I, obviously, I couldn't have seen this because it was me running down the hall, but I have the same image sort of from the side of the spectators of me running down the hall. <laughs> you know, I'm having the vision of myself running, but sort of seeing myself in the memory. And and do your sisters ever make fun of you about that? that, that whole well, yeah, I was a baby brother, so <laughs> that was just one small event <laughs> among many. Oh really? <laughs> well, I also I also read that when you were little, you liked to play with Lincoln logs, yeah. and that after you were done building, you weren't satisfied with just building. Then you had to draw your creations as if they were actual renderings of the building. Exactly. It, it wasn't real until you had kind of done the rendering. And do you still have <laughs> do you still have any of those drawings? No, I haven't saved any of that. And I was just trying to talk my son into saving his own. Uh, ephemera from his early years and he was imploring me to throw it away. Really? And did you or did no, you secretly I, I hide it? No, I put it in a different box <laughs> that you couldn't see. <laughs> One day he'll be glad you kept them. Yeah. So I, I know that your mother was a, a talented seamstress and you've said um, that she had a lot of impact on you or that this had a lot of impact on you and I was wondering how so? Well, just to see someone have a kind of a visual and creative practice and to see how it fits into their lives, I think even though, you know, I, I didn't follow suit, I certainly saw the example of her sewing and, and she was an amateur painter and kind of was a, a sort of a tireless um, sort of redecorator. Um, you right. know, I think we moved around to successive houses and it was always sort of because it was a new a new palette, you know, a new opportunity um, a new place to create design interventions. <laughs> you know, it was sort of uh, inspiring to watch someone remake things so so completely. Well, I, I know that you had said that she was the kind of person that just did everything. If if she wanted the room painted, she painted the room. If she wanted a window, she put in a window. Right, right. <laughs> I love that's another image that I love. So she was she was highly self sufficient. Yes. And also just um, don't draw it, just start doing it. <laughs> <laughs> just pound that hole into the wall. Exactly. So so when did you realize that you wanted to be a designer? Or did you did, did you start first? I know you wanted to be a painter originally. but Well, there was sort of like in high school, especially at the time when I was in high school, there wasn't really this kind of differentiation that you would be more of a graphic designer or more media-oriented, and I think that's pretty assumed now. I think by the time kids are in high school now, they've kind of figured out, are they a painter or a sculptor or a designer? And for myself, it was um, much more just visual art was the category. And I didn't really start to think about 
the difference is until I uh, did a, a kind of a summer course at Parsons um, between my junior and senior year uh, in high school. Oh, and I, okay. I chose to do a graphic design program because it seemed more responsible than why doing you, yeah, I, I, for sculpture. I, I know. I know that you, you thought it would be more responsible. So why do you think it was – why did you think it would be more responsible? Um, I think that the idea that one could go to New York and actually learn a skill that was more uh, sort of immediately uh, uh, marketable was in the back of my mind even then. Um, mm-hmm. And it just seemed sort of like more, slightly more uh, sort of defensible, like I want to go away to this you know program in New York, asking your parents to fund your foray. It seemed like, you know, sort of it would go down better. And <laughs> did, did you ever feel that you needed to have a career that would ensure more um, financial uh, prosperity than design necessarily? Mm, not at that time. It was really just a good way to get to New York. You know, right. it so, was, And I think that um, for me, I kind of went towards design and then away from design and then back to design and kind of, you know, in the course of studying at Cooper Union, realizing that so much of what I really liked in the program and sort of about the thinking engendered at the school was really had a public dimension. It was sort of like design was public already. And the art world that I could see and the art world that I was familiar with seemed to be sort of very tribal and very much another another language. Um, and I, what appealed to me was really that design was already always about content. And uh, not that fine art isn't, but it really felt like this connection to a public and the clarity of it as a public language really appeals to me. Now, when you so you left Indiana to go to Parsons for that summer, was that the summer you were mugged, or were yes, you later it was. You were mugged? I think within the first two weeks. <laughs> Poor Abbott. <laughs> and and yet you still um, insisted on coming back. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, that to me was as much about how I looked and what I wore. I just looked like a mark, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, sort of like just figure it out, dress a little differently, uh, maybe like focus on you know the straight ahead, not looking up at the buildings. <laughs> sort of basic uh, advice so you, were, you might so give any tourist. Yeah, so you were looking in wonder, and then somebody came up. I was probably doing like a kind of you know Mary Tyler looking up at the sky. Yeah. <laughs> And um, were you terrified? Was it a life-changing experience being mugged? Not really. I mean, it was a, it was a bit threatening, you know, two guys with a knife right in the middle of the day on University Place, and it was it was surprising and you know shook me up. But um, I gave them my wallet and actually had all the money in my pocket, and I think I was probably carrying all the money I had. Right. So um, it lucked out because it just threw the wallet back in my face. <laughs> <laughs> Abbott, we have a caller on the line. We have Gregory from New York. Gregory, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Abbott. Hi. Um, I read Debbie's book, and like Debbie, actually, I'm quite fascinated by your mother, um, primarily because my mother would have a woman come to help her clean the house once a week, but I don't think she wanted her so much just to clean the house. She wanted a helper. Mm-hmm. She wanted to help her in crime. She wanted someone to, like, help her move or to repair things in the house because my father wasn't handy. Right. And I'm curious, um, was your father, was your father, did your father recognize your mother as a creative person? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was sort of, uh, uh, you know, just part of who she was. And 
I think that it, the her decision to do so much on her own was born of both um, financial expediency, but also just the kind of slightly impulsive nature of just wanting to get do something right now. You know, I'd like to put a window there now, not so, wait so, and so hire someone to do it. So taking that sledgehammer and busting the wall <laughs> yeah. to put a window where a window ought to be. Right. Um, was he just sort of silently being tolerant, thinking, oh, God, you know, I hope she doesn't wreck the rest of the house. Uh, uh, sort or, of, yeah. yeah. Like sort of, what have you got into now? It was not quite Lucille Ball, but, you know. <laughs> was he creative himself or not? No, not really. He was a, a entrepreneurial and sort of had his own business, but he wasn't visually wasn't attuned to you know visual art. He 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 played musical instruments, but he wasn't uh, at all inclined towards the visual. And your sisters were any of them creative? Or were you my my one sister is a classical guitarist, and the other are um, two are teachers, um, and one more who's a. Um, uh, what do you call it? Homemaker. <laughs> it sounds like a pretty liberal arts household and pretty copacetic. I don't know. Yeah, but not bohemian by any stretch. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But, you know, I, I, and that thing that you just said about university place in the middle of the daytime, you know, I left the city after over 20 years, and um, those things and the Debbie's monologue remind me that I'm glad, really, that, I'm, that no woman with crazy hair and two coats is coming towards me. But um, I, I think it's great that you had parents who are so supportive of you, and, um, you know, it shows in your work and everything. So, oh, thanks. Um, you know, and is your mother still? No, that? both my parents are gone. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm That's sorry. okay. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for calling, Gregory. Okay. Bye. You know, Abbott, it's just, it's so interesting. I, I mean, I knew you, I knew you were mugged in New York City, but I didn't know where, and, and it's in that same exact spot that I was actually pickpocketed when I first moved to Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And was absolutely devastated, because yeah. I, again, I, why is it that young people carry around all their money? Because <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't leave it back at the dorm. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> So speaking of family, you know, every week right before my show, I get a lot of emails from people. Oh, could you please ask the guest this? Can you please ask your guest that? And, and I love to get those emails because it gives me such great inspiration and ideas for questions. And for some reason, a lot of questions that came in this week had a very similar uh, theme to them, and that was ask Abbott about Ellen. <laughs> Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so I want to ask you a little bit about sure. Ellen. Um, I know you met her in 1981. You met her at Cooper Union, in Cooper Union, right? Um, in Nick uh, Marciano's first Monday morning drawing class, right? right? So, was it love at first sight? No, we were. Uh, it was a much longer process of uh, friends, then attempted boyfriend girlfriend, and then you know a good, want to say six seven year hiatus. <laughs> Where um, it was, and during that whole time, we were really quite involved with one another in terms of writing and 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 college, and you right. know, going to graduate school. It was more a question of uh, kind of being totally connected, sort of aesthetically and intellectually, but not romantically. Mm-hmm. And um, so, really, the uh, that first meeting was more uh, sort of a, the beginning of a friendship. And the whole sort of second part of our relationship didn't start until well after Cooper Union. And um, where did you get married? In Cape May, New Jersey. And did you have a big wedding? Did, no, did anybody ever ask you these or questions? 60 people. <laughs> <laughs> now this is the big question: Who designed the invitation? Well, we both did together, mm-hmm. and um, they're very nice. 
how what is the process like for your design and editorial collaboration? Is there a way that you both work together? Is yeah, there... it's funny because when we did our first couple of projects, I think the first really formal one was probably the essay that we wrote for uh, graphic design in America, which was kind of an extended timeline, narrative timeline. And we were working on it, sort of dividing the research, but then really trying to write it together, like side by side. And it was, it was, it's great to do that, but it probably takes twice as long. And we just started to realize in our subsequent projects that we needed, we, the sort of shared intellectual foundation was there and that we could very easily start to sort of divide up the pieces and begin to write sort of more like parallel writing than sitting down actually composing the same words together. Mm-hmm. But I'd say that we did we did the kind of like literally co-writing for quite a while. There are several essays that we did in that way. Um, and then our essays book is really kind of almost a hybrid of the two ways of writing, both independently and side-by-side. Side. Um, they're, they're sort of blended in that book. Now, Dwell Magazine has said, and this is a quote, Lupton and Miller are to graphic design what Charles and Ray Eames were to industrial design. Um, how, does, how does it feel to hear something like that? Well, I, you know, I worship Charles and Ray Eames, so of course have take great exception to that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think it's really a hard analogy to pull off because, for one, there was a, a kind of... Um, a formal ingenuity to their work that I think is, you know, once in a lifetime sort of, uh, you know, cult figures. And I think that the analogy works in terms of saying that we're, you know, we work together and we work independently, um, that we, you know, it's, it's a very flattering sort of analogy, but I, I think neither of us would, would, would sort of lay claim to that. I just think that the achievement of the Eames is, is kind of, you know, it's furniture, graphics, architecture, exhibition design. It's kind of a tough one to top well, or match or even come close. You have lots more time, too. Yeah. So I, I don't uh, think it's as far away as you seem to. <laughs> right. um, but I did see your what also in Dwell. I saw your wonderful house um, and also on the design blog, uh, Design Sponge. Mm-hmm. And my favorite things were the wallpaper that you designed, so I want to ask you about that, but also the red wall in the bathroom. You have this gigantic, bright, it seemed to be like fire engine red wall in the bathroom. Mm-hmm. Who, made, who made that decision? I believe that was Ellen because she has the talent for coaxing me out of the, you know, kind of perfectly tasteful and into something a little more surprising. So I, I think that we kind of had looked at, you know, five different reds on the wall, and, uh, you know, that was sort of her um, her favorite. Um, and the same thing, we have a number of old radiators in the house, and, you know, I was dutifully going to paint them sort of something steely or black or white, and she said, do them red. And it's sort of one of the big signatures of our house is are these red radiators and they're beautiful so would you say just in general that your style or your taste is more tasteful and hers is more surprising is that something that you'd say is generally a theme that runs through your way I think, of seeing? well i don't know if i'd say that but i mean in those two examples yes so maybe it's true 
Um, but generally speaking, um, I think that she has her eye on things that are maybe more surprising. I, mm-hmm. I, I'd agree with that. And but I understand you're moving. You're moving. You're moving <laughs> <Yeah>. homes. <laughs> It's a sore subject (laughs) in the in the national housing crisis. Yes, we're moving. (laughs) Oh, did you already sell your house? No, no. Okay, all right. Well, we we don't have to talk about that. There's so many more important. You hit my sore spot today. Okay, I'm sorry about that. But back back to the to the past for a moment. So after you both graduated Cooper Union, you started the collaborative think tank Design Writing Research. You became co-chairs of the Graphic Design Department at the Maryland Institute College of Art in Baltimore, and you wrote books together. You taught together. You had two children, Jay and Ruby. Um, what was the first professional job that you and Ellen worked on? Gosh, I think uh, it was actually, I believe it was a little commission that came in from Tibor Coleman. Which, wow. Which was, um, he had been asked by a, a, a firm that did silkscreen printing to identify, you know, a few different people to do a kind of a, a poster. And um, I, I think that was the first one. And we proposed to do, uh, you know, we were always obsessed with, you know, what do you do with a poster? You know, will people really put it on the wall? So we turned it into a desk blotter um, mm. on the idea that someone would sort of just use it up and put it on their desk as a surface. And it was a poster that was about, it was a calendar, a kind of hybrid calendar of, of the month. And it was uh, called the psychopathology of everyday life, oh, and it was wonderful. all every date or several of the dates had different examples from Freud's psychopathology of moments when you you know sort of confuse dates on a calendar or a slip of the pen or you know some kind of verbal um, inversion um, that was revealing in some way. Wonderful! Wow. So, what was it like to work for Tibor? Um, well, I actually worked on um, a couple of projects with him, mostly writing-oriented. Um, I was sort of his, um, I was going to say I was sort of his Peggy Noonan, but I think that's probably a horrible um, mischaracterization. I worked with him on um, some of the presentations that he did, uh, Good History, Bad History, mm-hmm. which was interesting to work on because I had never really um, delivered uh, myself sort of such provocative kind of pronouncements and actually having Tibor as kind of the the voice of of this kind of manifesto was um, pretty interesting because he both was um, the person who was taking the hit for it, but he was also kind of goading the two of us on together to, to make it more provocative, more opinionated. And uh, that was, uh, I think it was a public, presentation, and then it became uh, printed in a couple of different places. How did you meet Tibor? I'm trying to remember how. I think I actually came to him for a job interview, and it was a kind of situation where you, at the interview you know that the that it, it won't work out probably, but that mm-hmm. you kind of wanted to still work together in some way. Right. And, um, and then that led to a, a book project with um, Vitra. He had gotten involved with uh, the design uh, furniture company Vitra in Switzerland and introduced me to uh, Rolf Feldbaum, the CEO, and then we did a book about uh, Charles and Ray Eames for right. Vitra. Now, you you said actually in our in our previous interview that, um, and I think about this quite a lot, Abbott, you said that you design like a writer and you write 
like a designer. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, about how, why you think that and then how you go about doing that. Well, I think that, um, you, you know, you kind of come from your base discipline. And I think Ellen is a natural writer and I'm a natural designer. And I, flu- I design more fluidly than I write. And so when I get to writing, it's sort of like trying to squeeze things through basically a design prism. Mm. And, and I kind of think more visually and spatially. And so the process of sort of coming to words with, uh, with an argument or with a, an idea is a little more torturous. Um, so I think that, you know, despite uh, the fact that it ends up in text, I really care more about the, the sort of the how an argument is built almost as a, a as a piece of design and then also you know it's it's partly why i like to do you know published writing i like to make books i like to make catalogs i like even to publish in you know magazines like i because they end up becoming a design artifact and for me kind of the the sort of the disappointment with all the writing that's going on in the blogosphere is that it's just so intangible. I really love the printed page, and that's sort of like a lot of the um, pleasure in writing for me. So it, it almost comes back to a designed object is the end result of the writing. Um, in terms of designing like a writer, um, I think that it's what I mean really is that there, there's story and uh, kind of a narrative element to the design that I do, uh, whether it's a poster or a book design, I kind of have to think it through verbally and kind of understand the approach in order to make it sort of make sense to me formally and visually. Do you, do you think that the written word, so to speak, stands a chance against the visual overload that we're experiencing in our culture now? Oh yeah, I'm very optimistic about the the importance of text. You know, I think that um, there's there's really no reason the proliferation of media to be really, uh, you know, afraid of or or sort of um, sorry about the the sort of supersession of the image. I, I I actually think that people rely more heavily on text, and you see text invading more and more parts of the way people speak. It, I just don't see the same kind of, um, I think Daniel Borston, the, the image, um, his book, those kind of pronouncements about how people only understand images, I, I, I really just don't see evidence of that. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned the word torturous before yeah. <laughs> and talking about um, some, of, some of the way that, yeah, approaching writing. Do you ever feel that, that you have a, a torturous experience in designing, or is that something that's just much more It's natural? much more open-ended, much more fluid. Um, it's, it's just more who I am. You know, it, it's, uh, I think, you know, I, I love writing, and I love the opportunity to do it, but at, at, at bottom, I'm a designer. And it's it's really not torturous. It's it's sort of um, revelatory to me. Mm, wonderful word. You you know you mentioned that you felt you were you were saddened by the the quality of writing, on in the blogosphere. It's um, not it's not that I don't want to say that exactly. It's more that I've I've not been so inclined to jump into the water mm-hmm. um, because for me I like getting a physical product out of okay, the act of I writing. Yeah. 
Um, now, you speaking of the the physical act of writing and and the physical um, piece at the end, you have been the editor and designer for ten years of the publication twice. Mm-hmm. You produce two issues a year, two marvelously gorgeous, luminous issues a year. Um, how do you go about coming up with the themes for, for each publication? Well, it, sometimes it starts by, it's more beginning with uh, the question of who to collaborate with. And um, I have to mention my publisher, Patsy Tarr, who is sort of an amazing person who's actually my longest-running professional relationship of my whole career. We started working on a dance magazine called Dance Inc. probably, I I hate to say it, but probably almost 18 years ago. And um, I've done twice with Patsy for the last 10 years, so it's a really long relationship. And Patsy is a, a patron of photography and a supporter of dance. And really the, the whole question of who to work with in terms of the, the performing talent has really always been her prerogative. And what to do with that person and how to photograph them and who to photograph has really been my, my work with the magazine. Mm-hmm. So um, it's interesting, though, because... We really see it as performing, as, as commissioning a performance for the magazine. And so that the photo shoot is really the creative opportunity. Um, what we're doing is really documenting something that really is meant to land in print. So that whole, that whole kind of setup makes it a kind of a unique place for people to perform within. And, um, So sometimes the thematic point really emerges in the conversation about the setting or the performer, or even um, just what emerges as an end result from the from the photo shoot. And is there is there a website that people can go to to see some of this? um, It's www.twice.org, and twice is spelled with a two. T like with the two W I C E dot org. Oh, good, good. So let's talk about Pentagram. You joined in 1999. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? First of all, did you have? Did you ever have aspirations? No, as you were... it was a total shock. Um, I had never. It just never occurred to me because I had come from my own studio, where I kind of felt like I was very much working in professional isolation, kind of working on projects making my way through various, you know, uh, architecture, publishing, fashion, mm-hmm. um, kind of working very independently in the, in the des- New York sort of design scene and not really feeling very connected to other, other designers in the community. Um, I had met Michael Beirut a couple times. I think everyone does eventually. <laughs> and he had said something about how much he liked the essays that, um, you know, that he had read of mine and, it really just never occurred to me, partly because I was always competing with Pentagram for projects and, you know, sometimes winning, sometimes losing, and always thinking of them as those other people. So it was sort of a shock when, um, you know, when I uh, first began speaking with Michael and Paula about joining because um, I had, you know, very, very small kind of connections with both of them previous to that. So it was was something I didn't really hadn't really thought of. And so, was your what was your initial reaction? Was it one of glee? Was it one of terror? What was? It was a little out? bit. Um, 
It was a little bit of both. It was sort of, of course, flattering. You know, anytime someone asks you out, you know, mm-hmm. if they ask you if you want to do, you know, it's very flattering. No matter how you thought about them as, as sort of competitors in the past, suddenly it's sort of um, intriguing. It's like, oh, that that's a totally different way of looking at um, at the world. Um, so it was it was intriguing, and I tossed and turned for quite a while um, because you spend a lot of time when you create your own sort of platform, um, kind of defending it and sort of protecting its boundaries and thinking this is who I am and this is who everyone else is. So it was it was a difficult process that um, took took a long time. Mm. And how has your practice changed? I know that that each partner at Pentagram has their own team and uh, they work both independently and jointly with other partners. How how has the type of work that you do changed, if at all, um, and, and is there a difference to the way that you actually do the work? I think there's um, probably the two things that I was most afraid of in joining was that I wasn't sure how, you know, my existing kind of base of projects and sensibility about how to do them how that would be impacted, and what, what was incredibly liberating and refreshing about Pentagram is that it really is an open structure. It's, it's sort of it works because it's very light in its sort of structure for the designers that work within it, and so there's really no kind of um, template. It's not like suddenly I do you know I used to do things this way and now I'll do them that way. Um, in that sense, it's very, very um, uh, sort of agile, and you can kind of create the, the studio or the team that, that you want inside of this umbrella structure. I think what's changed for, you know, probably more in terms of perceptions is that when there is a larger project that we, that I and my team, we sort of look bigger against the backdrop of Pentagram which can be very helpful. It's mostly helpful at times. You kind of need to sort of dial out the the kind of the the rest of Pentagram and mm-hmm. assure a client that you're, you know, it's just you. Right. And at other times you need to say, you know, I have, you know, a considerable, you know, sort of apparatus behind me that can take on a bigger project like this Museum that we're doing for Harley Davidson. Yes, that's what I was. I was going to ask you about that next. You uh, and your partner at Pentagram, Jim Bieber, have been working on the exhibition, the design. It seems everything about the Harley Davidson Museum. So, and I have seen some advanced pictures, which look absolutely spectacular. There's Thanks. an actual road that is built into the museum. Right. There are museums hanging on the walls. There are mu- I mean, there are motorcycles hanging from the walls, from what looks like the ceiling. It is just extraordinary. Tell us about how this project came about. Well, about um, four, four or five years ago, I designed a, a very large traveling exhibition for Harley-Davidson called the Open Road Tour, which was a kind of an amazing event. It really was um, a series of, of tent structures that would get set up on a site, like a very large um, motor speedway or a fairgrounds. And they wanted a museum-quality exhibition design um, where we would show artifacts and motorcycles and graphics. Um, they wanted to do that in 10 different cities all over the world. 
So we traveled to Barcelona and to Tokyo and to Sydney and Chicago, uh, uh, Baltimore and L.A. And that experience was was actually really fun. It moved really quickly, and it was a very positive kind of experience for everyone. And that was in honor of the hundredth anniversary of Harley. And um, this project began quite a while ago for my partner Jim, when uh, the company started talking about building a museum. So Jim has been working on it on and off, as in exploring different sites and different alternatives, um, from as long as seven years ago. Um, for myself, it began about two and a half years ago with the sort of first framing of the concepts for the museum and how we would tell the story in the, in the context of a building. And um, the project opens um, July 11th or 12th. Um, I forget which one. But it opens very soon, and it's sort of um, the, my first permanent um, exhibition design. You know, I've done a lot of exhibitions over the years, but they've always been, you know, up for a maximum of maybe six months or three months. And uh, it's very different designing in the context of a permanent building and a permanent display. Mm-hmm. And what, what was the most challenging aspect for you? Well, just that exactly. Um, the fact that, you know, when I do an exhibition for an existing space, you go in, you measure, you figure out what the lighting is like. You kind of have everything there before you, and whatever you do fits in it and builds upon it. If you want to change the floor, you can see how you might have to do that. Mm-hmm. And so this one was sort of like working in parallel with Jim and his team and sort of having everything be so completely dynamic. Um, what it meant for us was that, you know, we were really part of the architectural story, and that just brings an enormous complexity to the whole process. Um, it's it, I'm doing another project like that as well where the building either doesn't exist yet or is in formation. So all, a lot of questions about um, just, you know, how you deal with something that's sort of dynamic um, are 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 pulled into the project, and it just changes every aspect. But it also means that you can do things that you'd never be able to do in a, in a finished space mm. um, and kind of create opportunities for exhibition and display that, you know, are tailor-made to what you want to achieve. So it's exciting. It's definitely more exciting. It's also definitely a bigger headache. <laughs> now, had, are you a big fan of the motorcycle? Do you have? Do you ride? I don't ride, and I think the uh, people at Harley Davidson are just waiting for that moment when I finally do, uh, <laughs> <laughs> or they've given up. Uh, uh-huh. I approach it, and I am, enjoy it as you know. It, it's a design fetish. It's yeah. a design well, It's object. a gorgeous object, yeah. I, I totally appreciate it visually and um, culturally and, you know, historically. I just don't ride. And, you know, I've never connected all of those appreciations of its form and its beauty with the actual act of riding. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd be the first to admit I'm missing something in the story, but I, I sort of take it on my own terms. Now, you're, you're also doing, you know, I asked you if before the interview if you could 
give me um, just a, a, a short list of some of your more recent projects. And I got this wonderful, basically short story of, of the life of Abbott Miller at the moment. And I was just completely and totally enthralled with all the amazing work that you're doing. You're doing, um, in addition to working on Harley Davidson, you're also working on the Bruno Biennale. Right. Um, you're working on the Nature Conservancy with Ellen, an exhibit called Design for the Living World. Right. You're working with the scientist Eric Sanderson on an exhi exhibition called Manhattan, which is looking at the landscape and ecosystem of Manhattan in the year 1609. Right. Uh, you worked on the Superheroes book for the Costume Institute's new show. Mm-hmm. Um, your own monograph. Right. Um, how do you manage to juggle the enormity of these projects? Well, it, it's sort of a week-by-week week kind of um, approach, which sort of uh, is as much a reflection of my attention span as my um, appetite for sort of looking too far down the road and getting scared of projects. Um, truly, like, you know, sort of figure out, okay, what can we get done on all of these fronts in this week, and then you do the same thing the next week. Right. And kind of just keep advancing these things forward a step each time. And, you know, things like the project in Brno, um, the Biennale exhibition, you know, I was working on it bit by bit, you know, as, as early as last summer because mm -hmm. I knew it was coming up. And um, the Nature Conservancy project is is also one that we've been kind of brewing with since probably last August. So I think that one of my um, one of the things I've learned after working on projects uh, of this type for a while is that I do better with these things like books and exhibitions that you can kind of see them coming for a long time mm -hmm. and sort of chip away at them. I'm not a very fast designer in the sense of you know getting a project in and turning it out around really quickly. And they just suit my temperament and my kind of working strategy to kind of know what's up ahead in the next six months and um, have a, a kind of a, a long view on them that allows you to kind of keep working at them, have them brewing in the background. And that's sort of part of getting older is realizing that even when you're not actually working on something, you're kind of thinking about it and and thereby working on it. Oh, absolutely. In my interview with Paula Sher, she talked about how um, something can take five minutes but also at the same time have taken a lifetime to get right, that right. five minutes. You realize minutes. that you, you kind of get there's an upside to getting older, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> that you kind of sit with these things and you're kind of mulling them over, worrying about them, and the worrying and the mulling is a kind of working. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely germinating. At least I tell myself that. Yeah. Um, now, do you call, do most of your clients call you, or do you seek out certain types of clients? Well, they, they've almost always come through some kind of connection, you know, because of, um, because of my role in, in writing and exhibition design. I kind of have a, a kind of a, a network of curators and writers and historians that are kind of, part of my milieu, mm -hmm. and most of these projects kind of come towards me. I, I don't know how I would find them, you know, how I would actually solicit for this kind of project, and it always seems like the best way to get work of the kind that you like is to be doing that work and, and sort of just 
by example, sort of getting involved with something. The Nature Conservancy project that we're working on right now comes from, you know, a contact with uh, a, a previous client at, from the Smithsonian. So they, these things reach back in time and they kind of um, build on each other um, so that by the time a project kind of makes its way to you, there's something about the inevitability of your involvement, um, mm-hmm. which is very satisfying. I sort of know when a project kind of says me, mm-hmm. um, and I think some of my clients feel that way too. It's You're not really competing in the same um, arena as a, as a lot of other designers. It's sort of like, well, of course, you know, we've done this, we've done that. This is logically a project for Abbott. Um, you know, th- there's a kind of... Uh, profile that develops in the kind of work that I love, the kind of content that I love to work on. Now, um, I'm looking at some of the images from your Superheroes book, and this is the book that accompanies the Costume Institute's new Superheroes show. Right. And the design exploits the the sort of multi-panel approach of comic book pages. It shows details and fragments of the extraordinary clothes that superheroes have worn or wear. Um, the interior pages are very active, and right. it's very the, the the production is over the top, metal cover embossed with letters, and right. um, it's just extraordinary. I have a question for you. In going through this, I, I came upon and was very riveted by the um, Catwoman spread, mm-hmm. um, which featured um, Eartha Kid and Michelle Pfeiffer, right. and of course the marvelous Julie Newmar. And I was wondering if you had a favorite uh, version of Catwoman. <laughs> 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 had to ask, had to ask. You know, Paul Sayers is probably wondering the same thing. Um, you know, I didn't really, I haven't really, I, I guess the Michelle Pfeiffer one was the absolutely sexiest one, if that's... Yeah, you know, well, you did make her the biggest, which was somewhat... Yeah. Um, somewhat I think also Andrew Bolton, the curator, I, I think favors the Michelle Pfeiffer version as well. It doesn't so even that, look that real. That may be a, more of a joint reflection... Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is, the, we, we have a lot of fun with this book because, you know, when you usually do books about art or fashion, you know, you kind of select the best picture. And we made an early decision um, with Andrew, um, the curator, that, you know, part of what was great about this was that we could actually draw, like, multiple images from runway presentations so that in the same way that you look at a comic book where there's multi-panels and action happening inside of each frame and kind of a, a cinematic quality over the over the surface of the page, that we could actually do that. We could use four or five pictures for one one garment and really animate the pages in this way. So that's been, that that's what made this book kind of unusual and kind of a, a thrill to work on was this kind of variety within the imagery. Well, one of the wonderful things that um, I noticed about the pages of the uh, fashion on the runway was the wonderful way in which you actually broke the fashion out of the frame, um, and so it actually looks like the model is walking into or out of the right. page, which might be kind of hard to describe for, for the listeners, so I'll just encourage you to get this book because it is just magnificent. I do have a question about Superman mm-hmm. and the title of the essay that accompanies his section, which is called Secret Skin, an Essay in Unitard Theory. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could share some of what is in that essay with this 
marvelous title, An Essay in Unitard Theory. Um, what is I, Unitard Theory? <laughs> <laughs> this is a, a guest essayist by the, the novelist Michael Chabon. Oh, yes. And it's a beautiful, beautiful essay that um, Andrew and I were both mesmerized by the quality of this piece, and it actually appeared a couple of weeks ago in The New Yorker. And it's just a beautiful piece about sort of what it means to go in disguise and the importance of the kind of play strategy. And it's very personal. It's a, basically Michael Chabon talking about growing up and sort of, you know, being in thrall of these comic book characters, these superheroes, and sort of replicating their powers as a child. It's a beautiful essay. And I think his play on unitard theory was really a, 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 a kind of a pun on unified theory. Uh-huh. The idea that, you know, there could be a theory of wearing unitards was more facetious. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love it. Um, while we've been on the phone, or actually while we've been on, on the air, um, I've gotten an email from um, a, a listener that's asking if I could ask you who your influences are, who your influ- influences as a young designer, and what your favorite typeface is. And I think that would probably be the, the nice way to end the show to find out about your <laughs> favorite typeface. Uh, which should I do first? I think who your influence is as a young designer. I would have to say Ellen Lupton. Um, and the, oh, my God, I love I that. I would. I mean, uh, yeah. it's it's all local. You know, mm-hmm. it's like who did you go to school with? Who Whose project impressed you the most? Who were you competing with in school? And um, that's sort of a sentimental answer, but I think it has a lot to do with when you're at a very receptive moment, exploring ideas in a kind of school environment, um, you know, you can be impressed by people who come and give a talk, or you can love the work of Rachenko. Um, but what are you, you know, what's the active kind of dialogue? It was sort of between the two of us. It was like um, very much, uh, you know, going to school with each other. Right. And your favorite typeface? Favorite typeface, I would have to always say Scala. Oh, well, thank you, Abbott. Okay. You are just... Such a, a wonderful guest to such a wonderful designer, an incredible designer. Thanks, Debbie. Really appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks um, for having me. Thank you. I'd also like to give a very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, to Brian, Jeff, and Ruben at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me on April 11th on Design Matters are the partners of Modern Dog, Robin Ray and Mike Strasberger. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you in two weeks. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.